All right. Good show today, but we got to get right to it. Okay. We promised that we would do feedback last week. We did. We've broken we even this promise so we, many times now. We even encourage people to use priority postage. <laughs> but we ended up not doing a show last week for, for various reasons. And But we are going to get feedback at some point, aren't we, Joe? We are. Okay. I'm so, not going to say when anymore because we're just, <laughs> we just make liars out of ourselves. Oralargumentpodcast at gmail.com. Oralargumentpodcast at gmail.com. Or oralargument on Twitter. We're on the Facebooks. I guess we also want to encourage people to tell other people to listen to the show. If we grow our listener base enough, I think what I, one thing I remember from the recording that the listeners are about to listen to is you've promised some kind of star-studded cruise, oral argument cruise. That's <laughs> is that, right. Is that right? All right. So as more, long as we get enough cash to charter a Cunard line vessel. <laughs> anything else you want to say before we get to Daniel? Other than that, it's awesome. No, let's do it. Hello. Daniel. How are you? Hey, it's Christian. And this is Joe as well. Hello. Uh, great to hear your voices on the phone rather than on a podcast. So we've got Daniel Himmel from University of Chicago. So you two have me at a disadvantage in that you've interacted before? Uh, yes. So do we, we, uh, do we want to put this in the show? Not necessarily, I I, but no, I just observe generally I, that I, that you two have interacted before. We have, I think, yeah. I think readers might be interested or listeners might be interested to know uh, that we've actually been continuing an email chain uh, <laughs> that I think is uh, titled something like from the Yale Law Journal, re-laws public private structure. Right, um, right. When I was a student editor at the Yale Law Journal, Christian sent us an article that I loved um, that I could not persuade my fellow Yale Law Journal editors to ultimately publish there, but it uh, is now in print in the Florida State Law Review. Um, yeah, yeah, that's right. And it's a great, it's a great, great article. Oh, we agree um, about that. And I've actually, uh, so I have a whiteboard in my office, but um, don't really have a great eraser. Uh, so right <laughs> now I have sort of looming over my desk and I can't get it away. Uh, so Christian's always in my mind. Uh, <laughs> two by two uh, that Christian features in the article with uh, on one axis uh, enforcement, public or private, of course. and on another axis uh, lawmaking, public or private. Yep. Uh, and had a student in my office a few days ago asking what goes in box four. Uh, why don't we have uh, more public enforcement of private law. Mm -hmm. uh, so I directed the student to, of course, to my paper. <laughs> what is that? Is that parents? Patria? Parents Patria. Yeah. yeah. So when, when someone uh, creates, you know, so people create private laws, private statutes through contract all the time. It's right. not the only way. There are also things which we don't call contract, but are effectively the yeah. same. But when is it that someone creates law privately, basically self-interestedly, maybe, and yet the state will take up the mantle of being the prosecutor because normally with contract, the private individual right. sues for breach. And there are some cases uh, in, involving, for example, the enforcement of charitable trusts. Yep. And also attorney generals, uh, uh, attorneys general enforcing on uh, sort of museum entities that were privately created or other similar entities that were created privately, philanthropically. Yeah. Um, so there are some examples, and it's interesting not only to look at those examples, but also to ask, you know, why would you, why would that be uh, a small set? 
right? Why, why would that be a rare thing? Because it does thing? seem like a small set relative it does. to... But then you can ask questions about whether that's... We're just thinking about our own legal system and it's small for that reason. Mm-hmm. And because this this model that I came up with applies to any legal system, however you describe yeah, it. Yeah, it would have to it. be and, the U.S. losses. Or US international regimes or, yeah. or families or, you know, it's... Yeah. And, and so maybe that set isn't so empty in other kinds of regimes. But yeah, that was a, it, this is a pretty heartbreaking email thread that I, was involved <laughs> in, I have to say, partly because uh, um, it, it wasn't that you you could, you persuaded most of your colleagues to accept the article, right, Daniel? I think I, I think I lost right. out on a supermajority by one vote mm. <laughs> after two after one revision too, and and then I got the final rejection on my birthday. It was sad, yeah. but that's okay. And it's a measure of the shallowness of the legal academy that um, one would be sad. Uh, because we know of one another uh, that uh, we look to the proxy of the prestige of the publishing journal far too much. Yeah, uh, that's that true. Uh, because because really it's a very happy story. Several um, young, very intelligent, very curious, highly motivated individuals read your paper and thought a great deal about it. Yeah, and, and it's influenced them even to this day. Right. Well, that uh, and yeah. that's actually nothing but awesome. That's it, not the least bit sad. Christian didn't know the second part until uh, well after his birthday, right? He didn't know that three years later. Uh, this <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Good point. But but I did know, and this was so. Yale is one of Stanford is another one. There there are a few journals which are actually blind. Um, there's a rather distressing tendency among many journals to look at CVs and have basically, you know, where you've published before and and who you are count for a lot in, in, in and and then higher tier journals will take advantage of that information through the expedite process which is something that you and I will talk about soon Joe. Point. but Yale is blind right. uh, at least making to the extent it all that the more making be. it all the more awesome that they thought as highly of the pieces they did well I'm not no this is for me you know it's the pieces what it is but um, well, uh, but, but what was gratifying for me was the because that email thread that we're referring to isn't just you know we're really interested in your article uh can you re- you know can uh you almost got through with some revisions maybe you, it was it was all that and that's fine but what was more interesting was the depth of substantive feedback that i got from these like very intelligent students who yeah. who engage with the article as deeply as many of my colleagues and that was i, I thought that was great and yeah. indeed one of the revisions uh of, of the article came from from that process. So I don't know if you've had a chance to look back at it, Daniel, but it it was quite the thread. Yes. Uh, I also realized that while we'll probably spend quite a bit of time today talking about green books, um, I very much enjoyed (laughs) your, your blue book, uh, episode and Christian, I think made the remark about signaling, which, uh, made perfect sense to me. So, uh, do we want the blue book to be simple? Or do we want it to be complicated in ways that really essentially show nothing other than that the person applying the blue book has invested time in figuring out how to follow blue book rules, right? So law journals have to pick editors somehow, and they could do it based on grades. They can't really at Yale because there's not enough grade separation. But students would have lots of motivations to get good grades in law school. Um, There are relatively few reasons to learn the intricacies of Rule 19, right? 
um, aside from you want to become a law review editor. Uh, so we, we could just ask people, you know, how much do you want to become a law review editor? But um, <laughs> yeah. I guess I guess we could, you know, at the University of Chicago, we would suggest possibly auctioning off uh, law journal <laughs> spots. Um, but the blue book, the blue book functions quite effectively in this regard, right? It's it's the perfect signal in that it's correlated with how much grunt work are you going to do? How much grunt work are you willing to do? Uh, and that's uh, necessarily a significant portion of the the law review experience. Um, and how uh, how good are you at attention to detail? Right. Well, attention to detail doesn't capture this, but if it's about signaling desire, then it seems to me you want to pick the proxy for that, which which has two fewer defects than does the blue book. One fewer defect is that you are harming the person by taking up a lot of cognitive space brain space with rules which are actually useless and secondly you by you know inculcating people into an adherence to the blue book you kind of pollute the rest of the legal discourse with these complicated rules there's actually a much better way to do this and it's to make everyone learn gray's anatomy well no i was going to suggest that that contest i think we referred to on one of our early shows where you know it was that contest where people put their hands on a truck and the last person with their hand on the truck is the winner and, and wins the truck. Yeah, so I don't like just that because that's not about mental discipline. Uh, that's as, or that's as much desire. about physical discipline as, proxy- as mental discipline. Well, okay. So I, I think Gray's anatomy uh, and then an exam on anatomy because there's nothing wrong with knowing some anatomy. And that could actually come in handy at some point, especially after the apocalypse. So, <laughs> you know, like make people learn that, test them on that. And that way you get the mental discipline without the polluting of the discourse. And, and maybe that gets to Daniel's kind of second proxy point that you you don't just want to test desire you also want to probe detail orientedness yeah although i think i i think detail orientedness is actually a problem in the law journal world mm, right and i don't but you don't yeah. think so no I, I think it's because not in and of itself it's about what it's it's about what tr- what it's trained on it's all it's, to, ab- to it's me, about it's, opportunity cost Right. It's about like if you're focusing on certain kinds of details, there's simply less time and energy for other kinds of things. Well, but one reason why you don't have to spend all that much time worrying about whether your pin site is right is because, you know, the law review editors will catch it. Right. I, I mean, do I care? I mean, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I think so. Most pin sites are unnecessary. Not, no, no, no. No, it's hugely helpful to be able to find the exact page that someone is referring to. If, if you're referring to it, like so, so if, well, if well done pen do. sites are not are not. Of course, but most, but many pen sites are added by law journal editors. Yes, yeah, so, right. So the uh, I agree with you that um, most law review student editors are um, engaged in monumental amounts of self make work nonsensical behavior, um, and who I don't have the full explanation of why they do this. I was one myself, but it's now lost in the mists of time <laughs> and my memory is so bad. But, uh, the, but yeah, uh, so, so a, someone who writes a paper and does a good job as the author, um, prudently using pin sites where that's helpful. And most of the time not having them because they're not needed. I think, yeah, the pin sites are great. Yeah. It, it just, it's, it's part of that standard. We talked about this before. We're not going to redo it, but if your standard is be helpful to the reader, like yeah. help the reader find out if, if something is important to your argument, 
either that it's been made before or here's some evidence for the thing that I'm saying. And it's actually, it's not just someone else has said the exact thing that I'm saying and I don't want to be a plagiarist. That's one reason to cite something. Another is I'm going to make an assertion and someone else has made the assertion and I'm going to cite them as though that's evidence for my assertion, even though all they did was also make the assertion, (laughs) right? Then that's, uh, isn't it, wasn't it, was it Oren Kerr who, who put up the, the article, which, which was the source for all legal pronouncements. Do you remember this? Right. The green bag. The green bag. And and so you could just cite that. Right. Um, And so if, if that's the only purpose, then it, so again, it's like, how am I going to cite something in order to be helpful? To the, to the reader, directing the reader to something. Hey, if you had some questions about this sentence or this idea, here's a place to go, either to find out why I think that or to find out what the strength of the evidence is for that thing, or just to read more about something. Yeah. And whether you need a pen site there depends on how narrowly you want to target, like whether the whole, you know, and this is, you know, the general presumption among law review editors is to avoid the general site, even if what you're really doing is citing to an article length treatment of something. So a couple of points here. Um, In a world without perfect information, we're going to have costly signals. Um, And we're better off with costly signals than with none at all. And I think we might be, from the professor point of view, from the author point of view, failing to perceive the signaling role that these recommendations from law review editors to add a pin site are serving. So you're you're a 2L on the law review. And you want to signal to the three L's that you're really invested in this and will take the time to write the lengthy email with substantive comments uh, to an article author, right? Uh, That you're willing to do the things that the Yale Law Journal editors who were reading Christian's piece uh, did. One way you do that is when you're site checking or source citing, you come up with minute recommendations that end up in some cases being relayed to the author, but there's an, a sort of intra-agency uh, signaling going on here. A second point about using Gray's Anatomy, we have to be careful about something that students might have some comparative advantage, but might have some pre-existing advantage on. So a student who has a biology background will have an advantage uh, with respect to an equally uh, detail-oriented uh, student with a math PhD, right? Whereas with the Blue Book, there are very few people who come who come to law school with prior knowledge of the Blue Book. And, I, you know, I, I don't own a, a copy of the 20th edition of the Blue Book. It's remarkable how quickly one forgets it. I don't think there was a single time when I was clerking at the Supreme Court when we ever checked the Blue Book. Um, so... It really serves a role in this limited law review market, and I'm not sure the social costs. I mean, I don't know whether ultimately they're costs or benefits. I think the blue fair might, uh, the blue book might add to, to welfare overall. Well, when we succeed in when Christian succeeds in 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 uh, detonating the blue book <laughs> um, in favor of a much much simpler system, which eventually he will, I have no doubt. <laughs> Um, uh, I've seen him succeed at too many things to doubt that proposition, yeah. but I, but I'll, I'll just pick a second proxy. Okay. Uh, so, cause I agree with you that it would be unfair 
to privilege someone who uh, happens to have an excellent knowledge of human anatomy. Um, so you just need to pick a second thing for the bio folk, right? So it's some sort of an exam about automotive engine parts or something of that nature, right? So you could avoid, you could find an equally detailed and equally pointless um, be, and therefore non-polluting of the discourse, right? Um, thing for people to have to learn a lot of details about. Well, you're presuming there's no social utility in the blue book. I, I was taking that as a given yeah, from your a, given. original right. point of and, view, and, right? I, I wouldn't even say there's no social utility. I would say that, well, I, well, you I, were making the case I would that it was say negative. negative. I would right, say that it's negative. Because it pollutes the discourse. Right. It's yeah. just that there are, you know, to, to uh, get a little bit into Daniel's paper that we're going to talk about today at some Eventually, point. Eventually, yeah. uh, Presumably. Know, there, there are benefits to the Blue Book. It's just that the costs, I think, are far higher. And I'm also not sure about the intra-agency signaling point. Um, I don't know how much we want to get into. Ah, there's there's way too much. But um, so let's uh, not talk about. Well, it. it's so interesting though. <laughs> I, I do. I, I, w- I do think. Let me just. Can, can we end it here? There is a there is an underexplored possibility, and my two suggestions are are indicative of it, which is um, just because it would be good for someone to signal you about something doesn't mean you need to let them use the main event to send those signals, right? You can you can think of another way. So if you want to have a 2L successfully signal to a 3L something about their work habits, um, you, but you don't need to make sure that that harms the author who has to get that crazy email or the crazy markup with all of the track changes stuff they've now got to go click through and reject it's, because it's silly. Um, yeah. You can actually just so, sometimes, let yeah. them send you another kind, let let the two L signal the three L in some other way. Yeah, I, uh, Daniel's point I took to be that setting the blue book aside, the substantive feedback from the students can sometimes be very helpful, both as a pedagogical matter for the students. Yeah, we and haven't been talking about substantive feedback. I, I know, yet. right? Right, but but I I took the interagency point to be that to pick out students who are who can do that task excellently, which takes a lot of like perseverance. You've got to digest the whole article. You've got to, you know, kind of have the um, attention to detail that would point out something to the author that he or she may have missed and, and be able to know the relevance of that. It takes a lot of time that signaling that you are going to put in the, you know, large amount of time it takes to do that. Maybe, maybe the blue book can, can help with that. That that's what I took to be the entry agency argument, right? That, that, that's the claim. One, one last point, I guess, uh, Joe already got the last point, so you can edit <laughs> me out. Uh, if we think that the blue book outside of the law review context is a net bad, then we might want the Yale Law Journal and the Harvard Law Review and the Penn and Columbia Law Reviews to maintain their oligopoly on this, right? This is, this is a point that Others have made, but Christopher Katropia and James Gibson have an article from a few years back in the UCLA Law Review, The Upside of Intellectual Property's Downside. And one of the claims they make is that when the good in question is not a good but a bad, uh, monopoly reduces quantity. Um, mm-hmm. So we should embrace monopoly for those purposes. So if we think that citation systems, that, you know, we're, we're pretty much fine with bitly links uh, in the internet age, um, that citation systems are, are net bads beyond that. Maybe we don't want to bust this oligopoly. Well, hmm. I mean, that brings up the discussion we have with Chris Brigman. Does that, I, now I haven't read that article, 
does it apply though where the market um, that consumes the monopoly or oligopoly good is a strange one? In other words, where there is a value in conformity. There's so, so it's it's a strange market where the more people who consume the monopoly good, in this case, a citation system, the more valuable it is for the people who haven't consumed it to consume it. Right? It's a it's a strange thing, right? Whereas, I, I guess the argument would be that a monopoly, I, I don't know what they're Well, they can was. see the network tipping, so they want to jump out of the network. Right. Because the network's getting more valuable. Now, is is the argument there uh, about the upsides of, of the bad, that in a competitive market, the monopolists will tend to increase prices and therefore increase desires for substitutions? Uh, right, and reduce quantity as price increases. Yeah, is that, is that the right. essence of the that's, paper? That's that's the argument. Okay, that's and I assume. When I, but... when I was a clerk, uh, you know, we would have we wouldn't care very much about whether briefs were blue booked or whether uh, opinions were blue booked. We would care not at all at the Supreme Court because the Supreme Court had its own citation system. But mm-hmm. one of the reasons was because the D.C. Circuit would get two blue books for every chambers. Uh, we wouldn't have four. Um, and there were four clerks, uh, and it was just too much of a hassle to get up and, uh, find the blue. <laughs> so we ended up not using it. Yeah. Uh, we were, we were priced out by the oligopolists and I'm not sure the world would have been better, uh, if there had been a slightly less complex citation system to which we all had access. Clearly. I mean, I think clearly the demand is there for us to have another 10 shows about citation systems, Clearly, but I would love to have Daniel and and chris brigman on the same show oh yeah to debate this with us you know because i think i mark out one extreme position what i'm envisioning is a transatlantic cruise (laughs) and it is a series of evening conversations all of which are recorded you and i are always participating this is like a max fun cruise like there's always two other participants so every so every night is a different quartet conversational (laughs) quartet and um, one of those quartets will be the Sprigman Hemel, um, you know, cage death match on citation <laughs> systems. I, I would love so that. So let it be said. We so just need to increase done. the size of our audience a little bit. A little bit. To, to the people who ultimately would like it. We still haven't done that Yeah, yet. because to, to charter a Cunard ship to do the transatlantic <laughs> is going to be spendy. That's, it, it's going to take a lot of cash. Uh-huh. But we're up, we're up to it. We can do it. Okay. Well, that's uh, the challenge is laid down. Should we maybe get to the article? That, <laughs> that, <laughs> sure. That, that, in other exciting Blue Book related news, okay. uh, the Joint Committee on Taxation uh, uh-huh. came out this week with uh, its version of the Blue Book for 2015. Uh, so the Blue Book is the explanation given by the Joint Committee on Taxation for all the tax legislation passed over the course of the previous year. And it usually comes in February or March. And it's called the Blue Book? This is called the Blue Book. So so as to be distinguished uh, from the Green Book. See, I Uh, I figured there was a Yellow Book, and the Yellow Book and Blue Book were merged to make the Green Book. In drug law, there's a great thing called the Orange Book, which is about patents and drugs. So there's all kinds of important books that are known by their, 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 their their the color of their cover. Well, and, and, and the Green Book, which I assume we'll talk about soon, is the package of tax proposals that the president sends to Congress each year, usually around February, with basically all of his requests uh, for tax law changes. All right. So let's just say now we're about to talk about Daniel's article, okay. which is on the president's power to tax. Is this we'll, on we'll SSRN yet? 
Uh, it's not. Okay. Um, oh, I got to have something to link, Daniel. I mean, you um, want to get this in people's hands, right? Will will what what when will our uh, when will we be today or tomorrow released? Yeah, tomorrow probably, but maybe today. Today's uh, Friday. But look, if it's not up, I, I can I can uh, I can retcon this thing, and and when it does go up, I'll go back to the episode. It's just that people who uh, who download right away won't have. They'll, they'll just have to remember. They'll have to set a reminder. Maybe we can even do that. Like if I wanted to be, um, you know, not exactly mean. But I would say, hey, and then a certain virtual assistant that's built into many phones. Mm. I won't say that because I don't want to trigger it. Yes. Set a reminder to look up Daniel's article. Oh, you yeah. See, you I could, could go avoid telephone and, and then you could tell what to do. Exactly. Yeah. I'm not going to do that because I feel like that's a little bit too aggressive. But, right. But we could do that. Anyway, Daniel's got this great article, The President's Power to Tax. Now, we're about to talk about tax. And my, the reason I'm breaking in here is I'm saying don't stop the podcast. Don't turn it. Don't turn us off. You know, <laughs> it's actually. Yeah, there could be many thousands of brilliant articles. We could be taught brilliant, fun, interesting articles about tax, many aspects of the tax system. It's fascinating. We've had and least, this one is one of those great we've papers. Done episodes with, like with Lisa Milet on taxation. Yeah, and, it's fantastic. Uh, and and, uh, and body parts and bodies. But right. But more generally, I think the attitude of a lot of law students coming into law school, and maybe not a lot, is. Tax is about like learning the tax code. Maybe it's kind of boring. It's a, and and then they take tax and they realize how yeah. interesting it is because inside I, of tax law is, are all of these trade offs. It's basically all of the distributive justice of society mm. in terms of resources is kind of baked into systems of taxation. Here's what's terrible about the way you're treating our listeners right now, Christian. Yes. Which is they're so much better than the remarks you just made assume they are. And so I, I think it's quite shameful, actually, I, I that pr- you decided <laughs> that you decided that they needed that kind of pep talk. Our I, listeners are better mm-hmm. than that. I, I think our listeners are the best in the world, to be clear. I'm projecting myself like if I were a listener uh, before, especially before law school and before reading papers like this one. Yeah. And I know we have many. We've got undergraduates who listen. We have people in other fields. And I'm just trying to say that if you were like. The naive me, and maybe all of our listeners are better than naive me. They probably are. It's not hard. I to think do. that's a virtual certainty. <laughs> I, I'm just saying there is there's a lot to think about here that you might not have thought about before. That's all I'm saying. Three points here. One of all your right. listeners uh, is an assistant professor of law specializing in tax, so you <laughs> convinced some people uh, already. Yeah. Second. Um, this uh, don't stop listening now because this is a great way uh, to procrastinate from filing your tax returns. Ooh, uh, good point. And that's third, gold. It does strike me that tax is a bit of a branding problem, right? If we just called it redistribution law, it would be pretty. <laughs> we, we we'd be asking IP professors, "Hey, why isn't redistribution <laughs> law your area? That sounds just <laughs> obviously interesting, right?" And yet, tax law is where we hash out redistributive questions in our country so in other contexts people appreciate this as like one of the most interesting questions like who should pay for the bill how do we split up the bill for something right yeah. like how do we how do we pitch in even there we, we could probably think of something even better than redistribution law but 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 that that yeah i agree with you that would be a huge step forward the fundamental justice of burdens law benefits and burdens law mm. i like it mm. or the gimme shimmy um <laughs> i don't <laughs> But this, that's gonna that's gonna look a little strange on your transcript. <laughs> <laughs> talk about talk about signaling, right? So so this paper is not about those burdens themselves. Rather, it's about how we go about deciding and and, and the structures, the governmental structures that we have. Like what about them incentivizes us to make choices about 
you know, putting on new burdens or taking them away. And uh, Daniel, how would you, 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 do you just want to describe the project and let us know what you're, what you're up to here? Sure. Uh, and this is part of a broader project to understand uh, the executive branch's relationship to tax law. And this paper is itself a work in progress. Um, but President Obama and past presidents have used executive authority energetically, some might say aggressively, uh, over a wide range of areas to implement their domestic policy agendas, and even more so in the foreign context. So examples that we can think of recently, uh, the president's clean power plan, uh, deferred action for parents of Americans, or the president's uh, implementation of portions of his immigration policy agenda via executive action. Uh, the gun control measures that President Obama uh, announced from the White House in January. We see much less of this in tax law. And one explanation might be, well, the president just doesn't have the same power with respect to tax law that he might with respect to immigration or the environment or guns. Now, it's true that the president can't just say, I'm going to increase the top marginal rate from 39.6% to 45%. But the executive branch, the Treasury Department, gets Chevron deference with respect to the interpretation of tax law, uh, just as it does in other areas. Um, And there's a lot that the IRS could do via regulation. And one might also say that the president's just satisfied with Uh, the tax status quo. But we know that's not true because every year the president sends this green book to Congress with uh, changes that he wants Congress to make. And this green book always includes proposals that the president could just implement on his own by giving his treasury secretary, Jack Lew, a call and saying, promulgate a rule, wait 30 days for notice and comment, and make this the law. And this is some, some of this stuff is of interest only to tax lawyers. Some of it is really important stuff. So the president could probably, uh, with the Treasury Secretary and the Commissioner of the IRS, change the tax treatment of carried interest so that uh, hedge fund managers' profits and private equity fund managers' profits are taxed as ordinary income rather than capital gains. Can I can I stop you there for a second? And uh, you you mentioned Chevron deference. I just want to make sure I understood a, a point in your paper that wasn't crystal clear until 2011. Correct. Right. So that's fairly recent development that the court sort of held squarely that uh, the IRS interpretations of the tax code are treated in the same way the EPA administrator interpreting the Clean Water Act or um, the Federal Communications Commission interpreting the Telecommunications Act or, or something of that nature. I knew I should have broken in before you did, Joe, because my question is more fundamental than yours and, and, and will follow from yours. Uh, I will, yours will follow on from that, if you don't mind. I do mind because well, I because because my question was awesome. Yeah, it was. It, it's a very good question. But before <laughs> before we get there, I imagine like so. I just want to clarify what you mean by presidential power. And and Joe's question imagines a certain idea about that. And, and so you know, one idea of presidential power is you look at Article Two. The president's the commander in chief and has executive authority. And there are some things over which we think the president might have inherent executive authority just to make policy to do things. But you're chiefly and maybe only talking about the president's power to choose policies where the statutes 
allow where the governing statutes allow for that kind of choice or arguably allow for that kind of choice because there's a gap or an ambiguity or an ambiguity or it's, it says regulate in the public interest right and it's right. a very broad Which grant of authority yeah. uh, and general and, and generally and, and and there are many statutes like that especially yep. early 20th century statutes like yep. that uh and the tax code generally has maybe at least people's intuitions might be that it is much more rule-like and there's much less room for the president to choose his or her preferred policies based on that kind of open texture in the statute. That's maybe one of the reasons why, um, well, I'll, I'll let you guys take it from there, but in general, when the president is interpreting a statute and choosing a particular implementation of that statute using a particular interpretation of it, we give the president and the agency, through the agency interpreting that, some broad deference. And the court says, look, we might have disagreed with that interpretation, but that was for the agency to choose and it chose it and it's not unreasonable. Therefore, it's okay. That's the essence of this so-called Chevron deference. And with tax, it, it hadn't been clear, as Joe said, that that was the right approach. And I'm wondering if it was because tax was always seen as, seen as more rule-like, is because of its effects. Anyway, take it from there. I just wanted to clarify, and maybe I'm wrong about that. And so you should clarify my clarification, uh, Daniel. So there's a a couple of points. In 1979, the Supreme Court came out with a decision, National Muffler, about deference to the IRS. Uh, Five years later, uh, it came out with Chevron, uh, Chevron versus Natural Resources Defense Council, about deference to agencies in general. Uh, So from 1984 onward, there was a question about whether Chevron applied to tax. Uh, and a robust debate among folks in the tax law community uh, about whether national muffler or Chevron reigned. And when tax cases came up to the Supreme Court, they would basically at random cite national muffler or (laughs) Chevron or sometimes both. And it was hard to figure out what was going on. In 2011, in an 8-0 opinion written by Chief Justice Roberts, the court made it quite clear that Chevron applies with full force to tax. So in understanding why before 2011, uh, the president or the executive branch did not exercise authority maybe as energetically in tax as it did in other domains, perhaps one could point to the confusion over whether it was a national muffler regime over, uh, or a Chevron regime. Now, the difference between national muffler deference and Chevron deference wasn't huge. Uh, There are cases where it would matter, but I think even before 2011, uh, there were a lot of things that the Secretary of Treasury statutorily could do with respect to tax that he wasn't, even though it was consistent with uh, the president's policy agenda. I think it is the case that we view the Internal Revenue Code as much more rule-like rather than standard-like. The code just says 39.6% is the top marginal rate. Now, the Clean Air Act is pretty rule-like as well. The Clean Air Act has some very specific provisions, and yet we see EPA uh, regulating and sometimes pushing the bounds of its regulatory authority uh, in the Clean Air Act context. There are also provisions of the tax code uh, that are vast delegations of authority. So one that tax professors love to cite, Section 385, the secretary is authorized to prescribe such regulations as may be necessary or appropriate to determine whether an interest in a corporation 
is to be treated for purposes of this title as stock or indebtedness. Basically, the Treasury Secretary has the authority under the Internal Revenue Code to decide what's debt and what's equity. That's a pretty broad power. Hmm. The puzzle that this paper grapples with is why the Treasury Secretary and the President and the Commissioner of the IRS uh, have been, in many cases, reluctant to exercise this power. So there are no regs under Section 385, even though this broad delegation of authority has been around for decades. And not only is there uh, an asymmetry between tax law and other areas of law, it seems to me that there's an asymmetry within tax law. So the executive branch has asserted authority energetically, Greg Polsky might say unlawfully, I might disagree, in a taxpayer-friendly direction. So the -the check-the-box regime, which governs uh, the taxation of pass-through entities, uh, it's a set of regulations that the Clinton administration Treasury Department wrote in 1996 that took effect in 1997 that most taxpayers like, but that is based on based on one of these broad delegations of authority or based, based on uh, an expansive interpretation of Treasury's authority under the code. We see examples of this in other administrations as well. So it's not just that the president is unwilling to move the dial in tax law. It seems like he's more willing to move the dial one way rather than another. And and so the, yeah, before we get to your model, um, which is the is the core of the piece, maybe we could lay out the dynamic clearly using just one of your examples, and maybe maybe carried interest because it was such an right. issue in the um, twenty twelve presidential campaign, and will be again, I think, because it's still the problem hasn't been addressed. Yeah, so this is a chance for people to, who so, may not like like I didn't until I heard another talk at another time fully understand what the carried interest issue is. Do you want to kind of explain that and then explain the dynamics and then maybe we can get into your model through that? Is that a reasonable way to proceed? Sure. Um, carried interest is a bit more complicated. We could also do uh, conservation easement deductions, but we'll, we'll do carried interest. So let's say uh, Christian and Joe uh, start a partnership with the goal of buying up Properties in Athens, Georgia, and flipping them. Uh, and boom, Joe's got all boom the- business idea right here. I, I love it. But Joe's got all the money, uh, and he's got That's better tr- things to do with his time. It's true. Uh, so he says, "Christian, I'm going to put up all the cash, uh, and you're going to do all the work. Um, you'll have uh, a fifty percent profits interest." It's in like it. you know us. It's like you're here. <laughs> <laughs> okay, keep going, Daniel. Okay, so uh, you're gonna you're gonna get fifty percent of the profits. I'm putting up all 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 the capital. Um, so you buy you buy some properties. You hold them on. Uh, you hold on to them for uh, a couple of years. You sell them at a gain. Under uh, existing law, that gain would be taxed as a long term capital gain, and you'd be subject to a 20% rate uh, rather than I'll assume that you're uh, high earners down there and rather than the ordinary income rate of 39.6%. So the question is, well, wait, is that really fair? 
normally, you know, when we do our, our hard work as law professors, we're uh, generating labor income. Our labor income is taxed as ordinary income rather than as capital gains. Um, what Christian was doing in this was all labor, right? He was yep. driving around Athens in a car and finding uh, properties that were undervalued. So why shouldn't he be subject to the top 39.6% rate on that? And just to be clear, this is a question apart from whether the tax code should prefer capital gains over earned income, uh, right. which is also a question. But like, even if you assume that that... But if the rate to, of one weren't lower than the other, we wouldn't be having the conversation. Right. Basically double in this case, right? So, yeah. Exactly. Right now, uh, everyone agrees that the setup would be... That, that, that Christian would be able to gain... Uh, to, to claim capital gains treatment. But the... Treasury Secretary has broad authority to promulgate regulations addressing circumstances in which a partner performs services for a partnership uh, and has the authority uh, to treat Christian in this interaction, uh, not as a partner, uh, but as an employee of the partnership. So his income would be treated as as labor income uh, and taxed as uh, ordinary income at the top rates. Um, and we're not that worried about your uh, uh, Miller-Turner partnership down in, down in Athens. Uh, that hasn't been a hot-button issue. But this is essentially the setup that hedge fund managers and private equity managers use. The manager gets uh, a 20% interest in the profits from the fund. And if those profits come in the form of long-term capital gains... Uh, or dividends gets to uh, claim preferential treatment under the existing code. So if we treated this like ordinary income and, and taxed it at basically double the rate, I saw one estimate. I saw two estimates in your paper that this could generate between eighteen and one hundred and eighty billion dollars in additional revenue for the United States over the next decade. Right now, that's a pretty wide margin. Yes, and <laughs> order <it's>, of magnitude. <laughs> it's interesting uh, that. There's that wide of a disagreement as to how much uh, changing the uh, treatment of carried interest would matter to the government's bottom line. Um, $18 billion over a decade is still a heck of a lot of money. It's probably a lot more money than uh, the Miller-Turner partnership uh, is going to generate. Um, well, you haven't seen us with uh, saws and hammers yet. so That's you know. true. Um, well us with the saws and hammers. I think the setup is that Joe's really just buying the saws and the hammers and Christian is Yeah, he likes to claim credit for all kinds of things, though, yeah. This is a huge amount of money and we have no ambiguity as to what President Obama's position is. Every year in the Green Book, he asks Congress to change the tax treatment of carried interest in investment partnerships. And every year, Congress says no. And it's hugely popular, right? Because I mean, well, I don't know what the latest polling is, but there's a certain like electoral appeal to arguing that, you know, very rich people who clear large sums of money through ordinary looking labor, just because they characterize it a certain way, shouldn't mean that their tax treatment is so much more uh, advantaged than than ordinary laborers. And and so the puzzle is the president says that he wants this. There appears to be a, an electoral reason to push for it uh, in addition to whatever you know, fundamental justice reasons we could come up with and argue about. There also appears to be a, 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 me a mechanism for accomplishing it that's entirely within his control. 
Right, because the statute is susceptible to an interpretation, which right. would probably be recognized. So why isn't he doing it? So why doesn't he do it? Is that the fundamental puzzle, Daniel? That, that is the puzzle. I think you, uh, you just jumped a few years ahead of me uh, <laughs> in the following, following sense. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Uh, I, think, I think carried interest is something of a special case in that for a lot of listeners, for probably a majority of listeners, this is not the first time you've heard about carried interest. Most listeners, and I don't want to underestimate uh, the tax law knowledge of your listener base, um, but most listeners have not thought deeply about the deduction for upward development easements under Section 170H uh, or uh, the lower of cost or market inventory accounting method or the other areas where there are changes to the tax law that would raise revenue that the president asks Congress to make, but that he already has authority to make. And that that conservation easement one is easy to talk about. This is just the one where most people are probably familiar with the idea that you can put, you can basically give a, uh, what really is a covenant uh, to like a conservation organization, under which you promise to, uh, you promise not to develop parts of your property to preserve it and for conservation purposes. And what you get from that is not only the, psychic good of having preserved some property, but also some tax treatment because your property is now worth less because it's restricted. And one thing that people have done is with historic buildings, and we can get into these old techniques, we don't need to, but uh, you give to such an organization uh, a covenant which says you will not develop above a certain height, right? And uh, and so basically you are covenanting, you're covenanting away your right to make use of the airspace above your property. And now you claim a uh, uh, tax uh, tax advantage for for that is that roughly what's going on there? That's rough. It's exactly what's going on. The statute uh, allows you to claim the deduction if you are preserving a historically significant land area or certified historic structure, and there's a process for certifying a historic structure. Um, but there's a question of whether airspace counts, right? So right. you're not preserving the land area. Uh, the land area is already covered uh, by the house. Uh, and you're not preserving the structure, you're just preserving the air above the structure. President Obama asks Congress every year to change, uh, to, to, to make it clear that taxpayers can't claim deductions for uh, these airspace easement contributions. Uh, but this would be well within the bounds of Chevron deference uh, for Treasury just to say, look, our interpretation of 170H is that it doesn't apply to airspace. Uh, and he doesn't do that. This is in contradistinction to just about every other area of federal law where the president through agencies is perfectly comfortable putting in place new interpretations that advance his or her policy agenda, right? I mean, that's the the puzzle is not just why doesn't he do it? It's why doesn't he do it when he does it in all these other areas? Right. Now, I, I want to be careful about saying that there are no other areas in which he's as reluctant to act as as tax. Tax scholars spend a lot of time talking about tax law exceptionalism. We think we're different from everyone else. Uh, And this paper is uh, trying to point out that as a a statutory matter, as a matter of judicial doctrine, we're not that different uh, from everyone else. And yet we see dynamics in the context of tax law policymaking very different from what we see in you know, the environmental context, in the immigration context. Uh, but I don't want to be uh, a tax law exceptionalist uh, 
uh, at the same time as uh, I criticize tax law exceptionalism. Uh, there are other cases, too, where the president has vast authority uh, that he doesn't exercise. So sentencing reform. Mm. Uh, he has the pardon power, uh, and yet he asks Congress uh, to change sentencing statutes. He could set up uh, an administrative commutation process and shorten the lengths of tens of thousands of federal prisoners' sentences. He's done that a bit, but we're talking about for a handful of people, uh, not for thousands. But that, that's, that's another area, though, where the costs are kind of the political costs are sharp. Right. And, and right. Your, mo- your model is going to capture Well, you're that, intruding now on Daniel's answer. Right. But- so, 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 so one political story is that uh, most of these provisions, the change that the president wants to make will raise revenue. It will not be terribly popular among affected taxpayers. And the rest of us won't know about this, except insofar as the government has more money to spend. When the government spends money, most of us, I think, attribute that to some extent to the president who signed appropriations legislation and to a large extent to Congress, which passed the appropriations legislation. So the president and Congress share the political benefits from spending. When it comes to taxes, well, if we're talking about a statutory change, the statute had to be passed by Congress and signed by the president. So uh, we might allocate blame uh, to both the president and Congress when we have to pay more in taxes. But if the president moves on his own to raise revenue, uh, then my claim is that at least sophisticated taxpayers and interest groups will blame the president entirely for that. There's a benefit from the revenue that the federal government has raised and can now spend, but the political benefit will be shared between Congress and the president. So President Obama looks at this, and President Bush looked at this, and President Clinton looked at this. And while I don't think that uh, these were the exact thoughts that were going through their mind, they would ask, well, why should I bear all the political costs of revenue raising when I'm going to have to share the political benefits? So so the shape of this problem is that you have a political actor who has to do something where the, the, uh, you know, like with any action, there are costs and benefits, but where the benefits are, um, are, are, are only, are distantly related and are filtered through uh, a, a broader system so that you can't trace particular benefits to the costs that were incurred, right? Right. I think no, none of us know what the marginal dollar of federal spending is, right? None of us, it's very difficult to, you know, look out your window, see a, a bridge built by uh, federal dollars and say, oh, I know that uh, we have the money for that bridge. Uh, because the tax rate rose from 35% to 39.6%. Right. I think, I think even tax law professors uh, and economists can't figure out what the marginal dollar uh, spent is. Um, and I don't think uh, ordinary Americans, the, uh, can't, I mean, not that tax law scholars are all uh, extraordinary, but we are a quirky bunch. Um, <laughs> so, so why does the president 
uh, designate under that Antiquity Act or whatever the darn thing is called? Why does he designate national monuments, given that, of course, that that will be uh, perceived negatively by some people who are disadvantaged by the change in status of those physical spaces? Um, the benefits are widely distributed, not just uh, at uh, the present time, but over time, uh, to many, many, many other people. Um, why do presidents bother? Well, so in uh, at midnight, at the very end of his administration, uh, President Clinton used this power robustly, and presidents used this power to uh, under the Antiquities Act. Uh, uh, over time, uh, throughout their administration. When it happens, I think the people who benefit attribute the benefit to the president, right? And the right. people who are harmed attribute the cost to the president. So there's no asymmetry of costs and benefits. The president gets all the benefits and bears all the costs. Uh, and, and part of that is but, because the benefits are directly attached to the action. But he doesn't get all the benefit. He gets some benefit, right? He gets almost all. No, the, all the people who get to go use that park no, benefit. No, no, no. What, what I think see, this is an ambiguity about the way we're using the terms costs and benefits. We, I think because um, you're thinking about uh, blame and credit really more than costs and benefits, right, Daniel, in terms of the institutional model? Right. I'm, I'm saying political costs and political benefits here. So with uh, let's talk about President Obama's uh, – Oh, but uh, I thought with your spending, uh, your observations about the fact that the spending will be – spending if the president takes an executive action that raises revenue the spending is spending that courses through all of the policy choices that have already been made so that's just not that's not just credit or blame no no the the, the claim is that spending um spending on things that people like will generate uh, a public credit for that action right but that credit is diffuse now Right, because the spending can't. Occur, uh, okay, right. so there really isn't. Yeah, okay. Right, there, there are two levels of. Yep. There are two economies going on here. Right. right There's right, the right. internal institutional economy. Yep. And then there is the actual costs and benefits of the regulatory actions. And and what you would like to do in a designing a system is to bring those things together. Yeah. Right. So that so that the institution as a whole will act when the benefits of something exceed the costs. Uh, and so the but Daniel's paper is all about how this institutional economy creates kind of a game that may or may not deliver that. So, Daniel, if the president could, if he were to take an executive action that increased revenue and and take an action that he's already specified annually in the Green Book several times that he would like to see, right? If if there were in the economy of credit and blame, if there were a way to for him to get an individual benefit, he'd be more likely to do it? Well, so I, I think... Uh, the answer is yes uh, in two respects, right? So if the president could just close the, I don't want to say close the carried interest loophole because some people believe this is not a loophole, but the right answer uh, that tax law gives. But if the president were to change the tax treatment of carried interest so as to raise, we'll use a low end estimate, $18 billion over the course of the next decade, right? And he could put that $18 billion into the president's account. Uh, and dispense that himself, uh, then I think uh, his willingness to take revenue-raising measures on his own would increase. Uh, he, can't, he can't constitutionally do that, right? It's also, I think, the case that we've seen over the course of the last 
few years and maybe even the last few months, a change in the politics of taxation. So there, there may be political benefits to a president from changing the tax treatment of carried interests, right? Because that's become such a politically salient issue. There may be political benefits to a president of preventing corporate inversions, right? Preventing companies like Pfizer uh, from being able to move to Ireland. And because of that, because of that change in the dynamics of tax law policymaking uh, and the, the, the political economy of tax, we might see more uh, executive action uh, in this realm, at least for those highly salient issues uh, coming up soon. My hypothesis would be that it, that like with carried interest, it's a, you know, it's one part of the tax code. It's one part of the, if, if you're of the view that the rich get too easy a deal, perhaps for, you know, broader, um, uh, political choice reasons, then it, it takes a lot of political energy to make an issue of one of these facets, right? And carried interest was, you know, it took a lot of political energy to get people to focus on that. And most people still don't know exactly what carried interest really means. They only know that maybe Romney got even richer because he took advantage of that, right? And and that's going to be the unusual issue where taxing more heavily some segment of the population is seen as a political good by another portion of the population, right? So So that you don't have to rely on the close connection of raising revenue and spending in order for the president to gather credit from the population. Right. Now, now I think the dynamic that I'm describing, uh, and I don't think this is the whole story, right? I think there are other explanations for why the president might not act uh, in tax law where he would elsewhere. But, but if the story that I'm telling now is a, is a part of reality, uh, then I don't think we're locked into a world in which presidents fail to use executive authority in the tax law domain. We can imagine a President Sanders, a President Clinton, uh, even a President Kasich deciding, look, here are 10 loopholes in the tax law that everyone agrees are loopholes. Maybe leave carried interest out because there are some people who uh, don't believe that that's a loophole. Uh, And closing these 10 loopholes uh, would raise $50 $50 billion in revenue over the course of the next decade. Now, I can't get your average voter to pay attention to one of these loopholes. But if I stand up in the Rose Garden and say, today, uh, my Treasury Secretary is taking action that will raise $50 billion additional dollars, that will close the deficit by $50 billion, then maybe uh, the politics around tax law could change. But the normal politics you think are well described by, by your model. Well, and- I think I right. I th- I think that's that's one thing uh, that's happening when you're Congress and you receive the green book from the president each year, uh, and you see proposals that the president could implement via regulation. Um, hey, wh- why should you act? Right, let the yeah. president bear all the costs himself. He's got to share the political benefits anyway. Uh, so we can see two-sided inaction here where all else equal, the president and Congress both want to close the loophole, uh, but the president would really rather do it along with Congress and Congress would really prefer that the president 
take the heat himself. Do members ever talk this way about the about these issues? I mean, are they ever explicit about you know if the president cares so much, let him do it. Let let him do it himself. You know, th- there are uh, every year the Joint Committee on Taxation, in addition to coming out with the blue book, which describes measures that the president uh, measures that Congress has enacted over the course of the previous year has its own analysis of the green book. Uh, and that does, that's not color coded. Uh, <laughs> and very often, or uh, there are instances in which the joint committee on taxation will say, look, the president already has the power to do this on his own. So there are instances in which members of the house ways and means committee and Senate finance committee who they or their staff members do read what the joint committee on taxation puts out. Uh, they are aware that the president really could act. Because I could see them not wanting to even acknowledge that he has the power to do it. Um, I, I, I actually, to me, it's the, the, the part of your model that is, uh, that, that focused on the PAYGO uh, practice and the fact that that might actually have a suppressive effect. Right. It struck me as more interesting in the sense of, it, it, it talked about the sense in which a lot of these moves are bargaining chips. Right. So, so I think another important piece of this, uh, and again, this, this isn't the, the full story, Congress has over, uh, at various points in time, had in effect statutes uh, that are called PAYGO statutes. And the idea is that we have to pay as we go. Right now, PAYGO applies to uh, tax cuts and to entitlement spending. So if we're going to create a new entitlement uh, under PAYGO, Congress has to find some way to raise the revenue for that new entitlement. The, the total package needs to be scored as revenue neutral. Now, this is a statute, uh, not a constitutional <laughs> amendment, right. right? So Congress can just, in the statute... Just wave it. Right, it's got the PAYGO statute, then it passes a new bill, and it says the PAYGO statute does not apply to this new bill. Congress can do that, but PAYGO reflects a real desire among some members in Congress who we might describe as deficit hawks to only vote for legislation that's revenue neutral. So if the president knows, look, uh, I can raise $18 billion by changing the tax treatment of carried interest. There's this $18 billion spending package that I want to get through Congress. Uh, I could uh, do the carried interest change on my own, but I'd have to then find $18 billion uh, from somewhere else uh, in order to satisfy these deficit hawks. Yeah, because now that new $18 billion is part of the baseline when CBO scores the bill, right? Right, right. The president president doesn't get to credit uh, the $18 billion that he's done on his own for paygo purposes. Yeah, because it's CBO, not PBO. (laughs) It's It's the Congress's budget office. Um, and so whether he's dealing with a deficit hawk or, or what I might be more inclined to call a deficit peacock, uh, he's, he's going to have <laughs> oh, nice. this bargaining problem, right? That, that it's like, what's the baseline? When do I get credit for it? How is that a bargaining chip on the next thing I want to trade? And yeah. it seems to me that's a very significant uh, downward pressure on his desire to step out ahead and you assume he has all the power in the world that the that the courts would now say yeah we'll defer to the irs commissioner all of these are easy deference cases which probably isn't true but but assume it's true Uh, he still has all kinds of reasons under this bargaining context not to go anywhere near it should we recapitulate the two by two box 
idea okay. <laughs> in this conversation. I, I love two by two the, boxes. The heart, so. of the, the heart of your paper, Daniel, is the observation that we have two actors here, or at least a model. The, the model that we, there are two actors here, and each has a choice about whether to act, right? And, and so on the top axis, maybe we have president um, does not act, and the other president acts unilaterally. And the, and the other axis, we have Congress sits by and lets the president do everything or, or Congress acts in a statute, right? So there's, right. there's one box involving kind of cooperation. There's one box where, where nothing gets done. Anyway, so there's a two by two series of boxes. And, and, and the idea is that uh, given the incentives on, on each, where, where do we end up? And you describe this as a particular kind of game and a game theoretical uh, model. And I don't know if you want to talk about that, but you also give some suggestions about for varying levels of the president's ability to take credit or at various levels of which the credit is diffuse, what the likely, I don't know if we want to talk about equilibria, but what are the likely points where we're going to end up along this scale? And 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 that may differ depending on the presence or relative absence or relative abundance of deficit hawks or, or peacocks. And, and also the legislature's taste for uh, cutting taxes or, you know, so there are lots of opinions which go in here, which are, which influence the payoff matrices, the payoff matrix, I think. But do you want to exactly, describe it? Right. Yeah. Without a whiteboard, it might be difficult to do the two by two, uh, but I think we can do it uh, quite intuitively. Uh, so let's say you're the president and you know that no one in Congress cares at all about the deficit. Uh, they're all uh, deficit doves. I, I, should, I should interject here that that's my working theory, that even the deficit hawks actually don't care about the deficit. <laughs> but uh, anyway. I, well, I think I, they I, care a lot about having it as a cudgel. So that, I think they're all deficit peacocks. Yeah, but if you, but, if you, if you, if like a good Chicago economist, you believe in revealed preferences, nobody cares about the deficit. But, well, de- deficit peacock is, is really a great one. Is that, have you trademarked that? Yeah. <laughs> have you, Joe? That's a- well, I, I just used it in commerce. So I guess I have under the common law. Yeah. Boom. Maybe I haven't, maybe haven't registered it. You should register it. But, yeah. All right. I'm so, sure, I'm sure thousands of people have used that phrase before. There have been t- there have been times uh, when members of Congress really did care about the deficit. Remember back to the 1990s, the deficit was a highly salient political issue, right? Ross Perot got 19 percent of the vote. So, but wait, 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 wait. Ross Perot was never in Congress, uh, nor I imagine were most of the people who voted for him. Probably the last member of Congress who legitimately cared about the deficit was probably back in the Margaret Chase Smith era. I mean, you'd have to get a Republican <laughs> senator from Maine. Uh, b- back when Republican senators from Maine actually talked sense. Well, that's why I said revealed preference rather uh, than what they run on. And yeah, yeah, yeah. But, uh, but yeah, hey, go ahead, hey, Daniel. We, yeah, we, we balanced the budget in the 1990s, right? Uh, <laughs> and 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 maybe well, that was uh, Silicon all... Valley balanced the budget in the 1990s. <laughs> actually, actually, I think John Kasich balanced the budget himself. Is uh, that... <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, so when there are deficit hawks in Congress. Uh, the president has reason not to act on his own, make everyone in Congress a deficit peacock or a deficit dove, uh, and the president's incentive to raise revenue on his own increases. So that's actually a little counterintuitive, right? When Congress cares less about the deficit, we might see the president taking more deficit-closing measures. Because, uh, because, he, can't, because he can't rely on Congress to cooperate. Uh, well... 
I mean, no, we think like, like, no, like, it's if, not about cooperation. Because about Congress doesn't care if he, if he's going to get the eighteen billion dollar pa- spending package through Congress, he's going to get the eighteen billion dollar spending package through Congress. He doesn't need eighteen billion dollars of revenue to offset that eighteen billion dollars. Oh, right, yeah, package. yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. It's yeah. The yeah. Members of Congress yeah. don't yeah. care whether they satisfy PAYGO or or not. They'll right, just right. turn off the switch, right? Yeah. Um, so that's that's one uh, implication of of this this model. Uh, another is. Let's say Congress could credibly commit not to act, right? Uh, Congress could tie its hands. Uh, well, then the president is facing a, a different game than if he thinks there's some possibility of congressional action. Yeah, he'd prefer to share costs with Congress if Congress is willing to play along, but Congress has now told, itself, uh, told the president in incredible terms that it's not playing with him. Okay. Well, that might make the president more willing to act on his own. How is it that Congress uh, would credibly commit not to act in a revenue-raising direction? Well, we've kind of seen Congress do that now, Mm -hmm. right? We see the Tea Party caucus in uh, the Republican Party making it very, very difficult uh, for the Republican leadership to agree to revenue-raising measures. So we generally think that the Tea Party is going to lead to less revenue being raised by the federal government because they are anti-tax. But there's a sort of boomerang effect of the Tea Party uh, that it may make the president more likely to act on his own. So it could go in the direction of, you know, if you assumed that the midterm elections either set, if you assume that they were going to lead to less aggressive action on climate change, uh, it actually produced more aggressive action on climate change. Well, but not only, yes. Because they made it clear that they weren't going to do what they're going to do, so the president goes administratively and does it. But but in the regime of credit and blame, it's doubly beneficial for Tea Partiers, Tea Party politicians, because they get not only to be kind of not deficit hawks, but tax hawks, and to blame the president for unilateral executive actions. Right. But the president, well, the president tri- knows triple this. Bottom line, triple yeah, bottom line, because yeah. then they get to then they get to spend the president. Then they get to spend the revenue. They also them. get to spend the money. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but but the president knows this is going to happen. And so how does that shake out? Right. So, so the president knows this dynamic. And, and, and maybe at this point we are sitting together in the Oval Office and trying to figure trying to right. game this thing out. But like, do you, do you have a guess about the incentives on the because the, I don't know if I read I don't know if you traced out the incentives this far. I mean, that's a, in these games, you can always trace out the incentives one level further, like everybody knows this is the game. So what do they do after this? And so so the president knows that a, a Congress full of Tea Partiers is both going to um, well, they're going to do several things, right? One, they're not going to approve revenue increases. Two, they're going to attack him for any unilateral increases in, in, in revenue. Three, they're not really going to do anything to control spending. Fourth, they're not going to raise the debt ceiling <laughs> or they're going to threaten the debt ceiling. So, so I actually does... had been I, when I was looking at the paper, um, I was actually thinking the whole time, boy, what I'd really like to talk to Daniel about is the debt ceiling and what he thinks the president should do in the event that Congress were to not raise it. I'd be interested in that too, but I also want to make sure that you're able to talk about what you want to talk about, Daniel. And so I don't know if these incentives are relevant for your model or not. It may be that the president isn't willing to act on his own uh, when there's a a group in Congress that he doesn't want the Tea Party to get any credit for what he's done, right? Uh, That's possible. Uh, It's hard to uh, model spite, right? Um, (laughs) 
It's not impossible, but it's difficult. It's also now if you're if you're the president uh, right now, you're you're sort of coming to the end of the game, right? Uh, mm. You know, uh, you're out of there January twentieth, twenty seventeen. Incentives change at the end of uh, the administration as well. It's hard to figure out how incentives change at the end of the administration. So uh, the president's not around anymore, so he doesn't bear all the political costs of revenue raising, right? He could close the carried interest loophole and then get out of town, uh, come back to Chicago. Uh, he'll mm-hmm. be embraced with open arms. But he's also not around to spend the money. It's not clear that the end of an administration is going to lead to more robust presidential action. But also, also, as you point out in the article, he, he may have an interest in the success of the next administration, especially if he's convinced it's going to be Hillary, for example. Right. So he, he, might, he yeah. might be worried that if he takes all these uh, steps that adversely affect particular groups of taxpayers, that Hillary will uh, bear those political costs. Or he might think, gosh, you know, I'm headed back to Chicago. Uh, doesn't matter whether people are angry at me. I want Hillary to be in as positive a fiscal position as possible. Uh, so I'm going to clear this forest and then get out of town, right? I'm going to do it. Uh, and and if, if, if she wants to, uh, she can rescind some of the changes that I've made. Uh, and these, these special interest groups are going to give her credit, right, uh, for that rescission. Uh, I can actually put Hillary in a better position uh, by acting unilaterally right before I hand over the wheel. If, if you coordinate agenda control, because you know suddenly stuff's on her agenda she may not have wanted there. Right now, now agreed. Now I didn't try to model this uh, one because of uh, my own limited technical capabilities. Two, because what we're talking about here is a president who wants to move tax law in a revenue-raising direction, handing off power to a member of the same party who wants to move tax law in a revenue-raising direction. Do you know when the last time a living Democratic president has handed off power to another living Democratic president? This is a good test. See, now I'm going back in time. I'm in my time machine now, going backwards. Um, well, let's see, uh, it wasn't Clinton to Gore because Bush v. Gore. No, True. Not exactly, actually, would have, you know, anyway. Um, who was it, Joe? It wasn't Carter to Reagan because Reagan wasn't a Democrat. Okay, okay, we're making progress. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't FDR to Truman because FDR died and that is what made Truman the president, right? Or does that count? It, well, Kennedy, no, right. Kennedy to Johnson right. doesn't count, right? This right. is right. same this is reason. Off, you're not counting right. that. This, right. is, this is this is okay, someone, so, this is a Democratic president in a position similar to uh, where you know the betting markets tell us there's a sixty something percent chance uh, right. President Obama uh, will be in, where he'll know uh, exactly. on January nineteenth, yeah. twenty seventeen, right. that a Democratic president is taking over. Johnson hands over to Nixon. I mean, yeah. So this, it was before the Southern strategy, right? So it was before... The, it was before the 16th Amendment. It was yeah. actually before the Civil War. It was Franklin Pierce to James Buchanan. Yeah, and so uh, the, the party so, labels you know, almost have no meaning at that point anymore, right? right? And there's no yeah. federal income tax, right? right. <laughs> uh, so we don't really have a, a historical example Fascinating. Uh, to work on here, which means that the next few months are going to be super interesting. 
from a tax law perspective and from many other perspectives as although, well. Although Clinton didn't know that Gore wouldn't win either, right? So that may be a good model for expectations. There was every right. expectation that Gore should have won that election based and on And in fact, did win right? the popular vote, the yeah. national popular vote. So, so right. in terms of if you were thinking about what Clinton's behaviors were based on expectations. Right. And I'm just thinking, you know, economy's going well. All these, yeah. all the fundamentals seem to point towards a, a right. democratic win. And so you would, have, you would think that all of the things that would happen, at least until the actual lame duck period, would be similar, you know, w- would be in response to the incentives that a democratic pre- president would have wanting to hand off power to another democratic president. Yeah, but, you know, there's, there's such a huge difference attitudinally, um, sort of Gore with Lieberman as the VP sort of running as national scolds vis-a-vis um, the, the sort of Clinton car wreck. Um, that that was a very, <laughs> that yeah. that might have cast a pall over all this sort of other stuff yeah, maybe. Um, that you yeah. can imagine going on between. Uh, I mean, the the current president seems to think quite highly of the secretary, and so I would imagine that the the way they're figuring out how a handoff goes is quite different, right? It's got positive overtones instead of negative overtones. We also might think that the president's incentives change dramatically after the first Tuesday, after the first Monday in, in November right? <laughs> with President Clinton. Um, he didn't know what the outcome would be uh, on Wednesday morning because none of us did. Uh, but he did know that there was less than 100% chance that it was going to be Gore taking over. Right. Well, let me say this. So I feel like we haven't scratched the surface of what you've done and we don't, we only have a few more minutes. Um, but I want to let people know that like at the heart of this paper is this model, this two by two box that you've set up and you, you kind of trace out under different conditions what the incentives on the actors are and you try to find, you know, game theoretic equilibria for that. It's really fascinating. Mm. And so if you want to, and, and, and I will post the article, uh, to this episode show notes as soon as it's available. It may not be when we ship the episode, but, um, people should look out for it. Given that we only have a few more minutes, what have we missed that you think is that if there's something at the heart of this paper or something which is really interesting that we haven't touched on, what would you like people to know? One, I think that uh, as voters, um, we should think about what the president can do in tax law uh, and not accept legislative gridlock as a fait accompli. Right. Those of us, at least those of us who think there are loopholes in the Internal Revenue Code that we want to see closed, we should know that there is work President Obama could do, uh, work that a potential President Clinton could do uh, that would move the tax law more into alignment with our own preferences. Right. Uh, I, I think that's a point that a lot of a lot of voters, most voters, want to see. The rich pay more in tax, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, most voters think that that's entirely in Congress's wheelhouse. Right. I think we fail to appreciate the extent to which uh, the president has power over tax. So, in your model, if we can't move, if we can't move credit back to the, you know, to the presidential unilateral action box because credit requires spending and et cetera we could at least move some more blame back there for not acting. So it could be entirely a blame calculus. Yeah, I mean, box. you could have voters saying of a, of, a, of a candidate Clinton, why don't you have plans? Why haven't you laid out policy plans that explain the executive actions you're going to take to raise revenue? Because we all know you could take them. And I also think, though, that, that the problem with, say, executive actions is that people have 
this is why I try to start the conversation. It's not by a saying, problem. It's a feature. I mean, this is why I well, think it is. A, it's like an important part of the story um, that that's a valence in and of itself. And it's just the, the the word executive action is very broad, which is why I tried at the beginning to say what what we're mainly talking about here is we're talking about treasury regulations. Well, but ma- yes, in in particular, the implementation of statutes, the implementation of authority that's already been granted. Yes, rather than unilateral action to waive law, you know, the kinds of things that you see people argue about with respect to executive action these days, right? Right. I, the political I, rhetoric I'm not, around I'm it not, is, yeah. I'm not calling for, for presidential lawlessness. Right, right. Uh, uh, Section 7520 of the code gives the Treasury Secretary the power to prescribe all needful rules and regulations for the enforcement of the Internal Revenue Code. Uh, Congress has given this power to the executive branch. It's, we can see why Congress would give this power to the executive branch, at right. least why Congress would want the executive branch uh, to take revenue-raising measures on its own, right? There are good reasons why Congress uh, would want the president to bear all the political costs on his own. So it's not like a president who uh, takes executive action to raise revenue is necessarily contravening uh, legislative intent. And yeah, in fact, I, he might be doing exactly what people in Congress want him to do. Yeah. And, and for, I would say further that actually no one in this conversation has called for executive lawlessness. <laughs> Daniel hasn't. I haven't either. Um, because I've just said, Hey, uh, candidate for president, why are, why aren't you prepared to use the full scope of your lawful authority? Exactly. And then I guess a, a broader point is, so this paper is about features of the tax code that seem to most of us suboptimal. Uh, I think a a bunch of them are legitimately loopholes, right? Uh, They are indefensible. Uh, And some features are are close to indefensible. This leaves the question of sort of how we should feel come April 15th if we're real procrastinators uh, filing our taxes. (laughs) Um, I think the answer is we should feel pretty good, right? Um, I'm talking about items that are multi-billion dollar items. I'm not talking about trillion dollar items here. Uh, we have a tax system that it's easy to criticize. Um, it's easy to describe it as broken. The fact of the matter is that anyone who earns uh, wage income, the very highest earners, uh, they pay ordinary income tax on that, right? We haven't figured out how to tax the returns to capital yet, but we've, we're doing a really great job of taxing returns to labor, and we're doing it in a very progressive way. Right? LeBron James pays a top marginal tax rate of 39.6%, more when we include state taxes, uh, and he has no wiggle room there, right? He is fully reporting uh, his taxes because the cabs have sent the IRS a W-2. We've got a great system for making sure that the highest compensated people in our society pay taxes consistent with a progressive rate structure. So, yes, there are problems, uh, but I think um, when we send in our check on April 15th, we should feel pretty good about the fact that most rich people are sending in their checks too and sending in their checks for the full amount and for amounts that would be for amounts that are staggering from our perspective. Well, I guess we're going to have to have you back on for our Piketty episode. And, uh, <laughs> well, I want to have a debt ceiling episode too. I mean, I think the yeah. the questions about 
presidential power, congressional power, what should the president do, not just on raising revenue, but on managing the the revenue to to spending a formula uh, in a context where Congress can order that things be spent uh, and not have ordered that enough revenue be raised to cover it. Just that whole issue. And and a lot of interesting people have written a lot of interesting stuff about it. And I'm also, I, I want to know too, we don't have time. But we don't. I just want to put it out there. But I would like to have another I, episode about it. I want it. to know why basketball teams don't pay the LeBron James holding company in Ireland for goods and services related to basketball performance uh, <laughs> sandwiched between various other entities. And nice. uh, I guess that can't be done, but um, I, I wonder why not. Um, well, I think we hit the, ne- the, 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 the debt limit next on March 15th, 2017. So let's talk then. Awesome. Awesome. Cool. Thank you so much, Daniel. Appreciate your joining us. You're now one of our, uh, we have a, now a stable of special tax correspondents for the show and you are, are, are one of our special tax correspondents. Well, thanks. This was fun.